Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Thinking troubles us. Thinking tires us. Thinking can force us out of familiar, comforting habits. Thinking can complicate our lives. Thinking can set us at odds, or at least complicate our relationships with those we admire, or love, or follow. Well, my friends, it is that time. It's time for the last episode of the second season of From Babylon with Love. And as you could probably tell from that introductory quote, which was by Mr. Alan Jacobs, uh, we are going to be talking a little bit about thinking. And when I say we, I don't mean the royal we, and I don't mean Zach and I. I mean myself and Miss Laura Hashimov. Not Laura Batstone. No more. Mrs. Laura Hashimov, newly-ish married-ish. Yes. Newly-ish married for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Laura. What's it like being married? Tell us how life is so radically life different. Life is good. Life is good. I live with a boy. Yeah. <laughs> and no, it's great. It's great. I think the Christian community tends to err on one side or the other of like marriage is hard work or it's like, oh, marriage is all sunflowers and easy. And uh, the honeymoon phase is sunflowers. It's pretty easy. You guys are chill. And <laughs> we talked about this a little bit at one of the gatherings we were at. But yeah, more people saying like, actually, it's just really nice uh, <laughs> yeah. would be great. <laughs> Instead of like, actually... look out, here it comes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a real good word uh, for these times. And I'm glad that it, 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 the vibe is all, is all mellow for you guys. Um, now, Laura, I guess it's been a little while. Um, it hasn't been that long, but this is the first time you've been to the garage studio. Yep. You informed me of this. It's epic. I can't figure out how that's possible, except that we just zoomed a lot of talks. And we talked at the school the one time when it sounded like we were underwater. Yep. We were far away. This feels so (laughs) professional. It was, yeah, this is, imagine like the recordings we've made and then having poor Zach like listen to those and try to do something with them. Fix this. It's like a personal attack on him. (laughs) Um, okay, so Laura, we are here to to wrap up second season, okay? Um, mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about a couple things. One that uh, we want to start with is is how to think, which is which is a great uh, theme, but is also the title of a book by Mr. Alan Jacobs, a great Christian mm-hmm. scholar, a real all-purpose kind of writer, uh, writes at many different levels, really accessible guy. Uh, we're going to start with a discussion about him, that book, about that topic. Um, and then we want to end with um, uh, a time of talking about summer reading. Just kind of yes. try to stir the affection, the hope, the inspiration, the motivation um, for our podcast listeners to to dedicate some time this summer to reading good books. Mm-hmm. So first, how to think. Now, one of the reasons we are tackling this book is because you teach this book. I do. Uh, to seniors, is it seniors? Yeah, I have them read it the summer before senior year. Okay, so high school, uh, incoming high school seniors mm-hmm. are reading this book. And have you done this for years and years, or is no. this more recent? New experiment. So, did it last year. I had read it years ago when it first came out. And then I had, we did it for book club earlier last year. And then I thought, you know what? This a high schooler should read this. So I did it over the summer, and the students loved it. 
Um, I think a lot of them had never encountered this kind of non like modern nonfiction text before for one. And then the timing of, as you will hear, the more we discuss it, the timing of having them read it last summer when they're just being bombarded with information um, and feeling torn between two vastly different ideologies all the time for a 17, 18 year old. It was um, a pretty great read. And I had one student who did not read it until the day it was due or day before and he read it all in one sitting in, in like 90 minutes and was like, this is the best book I've ever read. Wow. And I was like, well, it would have been nice if you read it more slowly. <laughs> but, <Ironically. laughs> but no, and then actually terms and ideas from it, we used in our classroom all year long, which was great. So it kind of became a common language for us thinking about arguments um, and rhetoric and how people discuss and disagree. It was, it was a really helpful book. How, how old is the book? Is it a handful of years? Uh, I would say it is five to six years old. Because that's so interesting. As you say, it's almost like any time it would have landed in the last handful of years would have felt like, oh, we need this desperately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it feels like that ever more so every month, every year that goes by. It's like, oh, yeah, more of this, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, as you say, sort of uh, high schoolers who are ostensibly being taught or trying to learn how to think Mm -hmm. um, as a part of becoming educated. Um, But yeah, you know, the the push and pull of relationships, of home dynamics, of the different communities that that we are all in, but especially uh, your students are in, I would imagine, as you said, that this ended up being quite the breath of air, Mm -hmm. uh, something unusual, um, and yet naming all the things we all experience, Mm -hmm. which is sort of the bracing kind of enjoyment of a text like this, is you're reading it and you're like, of course, of course, of course, of Mm -hmm. course, and yet until it's like named it's sort of subterranean thoughts about how you think. Yes. And so to bring those to the surface ends up being incredibly helpful and illuminating, even if only as like, uh, yeah, of course that's true, but now that I can look at Mm -hmm. it and think about it for a second, um, it might actually impact me. So how do you uh, bring students into the text or do you do you just kind of move through the outline that he has? Is there a, a sort of certain things that you try to lean into mm-hmm. more than others? How do you approach it? Honestly, I just, uh, because it's a summer reading book, it's just fun to have them read it and then say, okay, what stood out to you? Where, where did major ideas um, encourage you, discourage you? What was new to you? What felt old to you. Um, but I, there's a couple of ideas that I like to focus on, um, the most because I think it sort of is helpful. And one of the biggest ones and one that came up the most throughout the year was what he calls the RCO, the repugnant cultural other, um, which is actually something that he took from a, a study by a different woman. But it's essentially this idea that for every thinking community, every community of people, there is going to be a repugnant cultural other the, that you, we all have certain uh, attractions and repulsions and how a different group thinks could either be attractive to us or repulsive to us. And you really need to identify where your attractions and repulsions lie. Mm. Um, and that says a lot about you and how you think and the community you're a part of. And if you find yourself um, with that every other group is only repulsive to you. There's, there's nothing attractive about their belief system. Then you really need to reevaluate the humility um, 
with which you're leading your life. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and I think that's one of the most helpful things about the book is he talks about thinking is not just some isolate sort of rational exercise that mm -hmm. individuals do. It's relational. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the communities that we, that we identify with. We think like according to those communities and against other communities. Um, and it also, it does all that sort of supercharged work of binding together communities and identities and things like that. So he does a really good job of sort of telegraphing or saying like, hey, you gotta, as you're saying, you have to look at what communities um, you are thinking with. Mm -hmm. And, and then part, one of the ways to do that is identifying those RCOs, those people mm -hmm. who are just like, ugh, the opposite yeah. and the worst, right? Right. Um, do you find students are able to do that pretty easily? I mean, do they have, at that age, do they even have entrenched um, positions or is it more, these are the positions they hear around them and they're still kind of coming to some of their conclusions? I feel like with yeah. adults, this is like obviously really baked in, um, but I am curious about, you know, a 17 year old. Right. I think they're at a stage where they're trying to figure out, um, and there's, there's tends to be a, a bit of shifting between like the, the way their parents think and then the way they want to think. Right? So there, there is a, a dash of that teenage rebellion where they might be opposite of their parents. But I think more than that, they are realizing, um, how much they do think like their parents, um, and then trying to decide if that's what they, they want to do or not. Mm -hmm. So I think they're definitely figuring it out. And more often than not, what they're trying to figure out is which social media feeds it, they tend to agree with. Um, that's how I tend to see it playing out is that sort of some of those ideologies and the, the community, what they're thinking of sort of the social media voices, um, because some students are realizing that their feeds look vastly different than their peers' feeds um, right. and trying to parse through how much of this do I agree with and how much of this is just being fed to me um, and sort of in a fervor of right. whatever, whatever side I'm a part of. Um, so that's always really interesting. I think you and I have seen this even at a younger age. I have freshmen who are more like politically, I shouldn't say politically aware, but freshmen who are like more just passionate. sort of passionate than I ever have before yeah. in the past year. And I right. think that's because of Instagram and TikTok um, diving into the deeper. It's not just, you know, fashion influencers now. It's like political influencers. Right. And as Bo Burnham would remind us, uh, fashion influencers are political influencers. This is also true. Everything is one now, right? Mm -hmm. So everything mm -hmm. is always political. Mm -hmm. um, and it is interesting seeing the passion of the freshmen, also thinking of them being maybe less along the path of differentiating between their parents' thinking and their thinking. Mm -hmm. And so you could see uh, homes are more passionate about certain things than others that might also echo through. I mean, one of the one of the contentions or hopes of a book like this as he says is that it is to hold out the possibility that it actually is possible even if it's very difficult for people to change their mind mm -hmm. and so he kind of like that's a thread throughout the book is like how would someone a grown adult who has been especially entrenched in a position in a community mm -hmm. um, how would someone actually go along this sort of royal road to actually mm -hmm. changing your mind um, because if thinking is relational, if thinking is community oriented or sometimes community bound, um, it comes at 
all sorts of costs. And that's why, in part, I thought it'd be cool for you and I to talk about this because we've talked about this before mm-hmm. with conspiracy think- thinking mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and other podcasts. And actually, in a couple others, we've the theme has come back around. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking about like adults, you know, who are sort of fully kind of, you know, set in their communities or at least the way they're approaching things. Um, and he and he gives examples and there's some really dramatic examples. He gives the example of the of the daughter of one of the main ministers of Westboro Baptist Church. Right. right. That incredibly sort of hate filled group that would just pick at every soldier and every mm-hmm. gay person's funeral and just like the most vile sorts of folks. And she was one of these sort of, you know, uh, sign holders. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And not just as a child, but then coming of age as a young woman um, and then and then found herself uh, very online, which was interesting. Right. Um, and and began to uh, have a back and forth with people or a person in particular um, who tried to more carefully without just sort of bashing her, mm-hmm. um, like ask questions about how she came to her conclusions or her convictions um, because they were spiritual, right? Spiritualized. Um, and so, so he gives this example, of this woman, because she actually ends up completely mm-hmm. rejecting her former position as part of Westboro Baptist and those viewpoints, that ideology, um, and becomes one of those rare public examples of someone mm-hmm. who legitimately and dramatically changed their mind at a, at a tremendous cost. Um, there are other examples in the text that one always felt so alive yeah. because I, I can remember her, you know, like on right. interviews, you know, or whatever, like representing the other position. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because it also highlights the way in which thinking is sometimes terrifying and dangerous. And it's not just words or ideas, right? It actually is the way people behave as well. Mm-hmm. And, that, um, and that the way we think and the words we use, the metaphors, as he describes in later chapters, that we sort of kind of live by will ultimately show in how we live and how we actually live, not just how it, or we... Or it needs to. Or, yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, right, that it ought to interface with real reality. Sometimes that's terrifying when it does, as we've seen uh, even recently in this country. Um, so do, when they see, or when you see those kinds of dramatic examples, mm-hmm. d- does, it, does it make you feel like, okay, people really could change their mind? Or is it like, that's precisely why it doesn't normally happen because it's like mm-hmm. so extreme or so rare mm-hmm. um but but what most people have experienced the last few years or even this year um with pandemic stuff or with you know whatever um vaccine stuff um is it's within our own families it's mm-hmm. our within our closest relationships that thinking in in agreement um seems to have broken down and a lot of people are just like i can't i can't even go there like it's just pointless um, so where where would we begin to maybe try to encourage an actual person who is experiencing maybe that just personal dislocation from um, people that they know and care about um, and and things that really matter? Mm-hmm. Um, h- how does one begin to walk through that? You can't walk mm-hmm. someone else through that necessarily no. if they're not up for it, right? Right. So how, how what are the kinds of things that we ought to do just to, for our, just to make sure we are being careful um, as thinkers. What mm. are the kinds of things that he would sort of move us through to, to, to check or to, to make sure we're kind of stepping back from? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the kinds of things that you would think seem to be kind of key to thinking well, just for someone who really wants to do that? Yeah. Well, as uh, aside to your previous point, her, uh, Megan Phelps Roper... Right is the, the woman who left Westboro Baptist. And she has a great TED Talk. 
and she actually just published her her uh, own story last year okay which i started reading but it was at the beginning of the pandemic and it was as you imagine a little rough to hear about like the inner workings of westboro baptist but i might take a break yeah yeah. (laughs) so um but it is her story is fascinating and i would recommend her ted talk um but something that stands out to me about her and and other ideas that as sort of i am thinking through this concept of changing your mind or just having an honest assessment of how you think and am i thinking well mm-hmm. or am i am i being sloppy or lazy in how i approach certain questions um i think the first thing is humility you have to have some sort of belief that you are not flawless and that you you have not thought through everything perfectly um which is so hard uh, a conversation to have especially when it comes to christian convictions because we don't want to say like hold everything loosely like anything could be real um but we do want to acknowledge our own fallibility in terms of maybe i don't know if i want to call them secondary things um but that you might be approaching things um, from a position of arrogance or pride and having to, to check that. Uh, and that obviously requires some soul work that is, I can't give you steps for. <laughs> but I think within the humility, hearing the gospel will only should only bring you more humility. So I think um, that's a major impediment that I see in myself um, in terms of when I need to change my mind I think that pride could be something mm-hmm. that would, would stop that. Um, and humility is what sort of opens the door to, to that. end. um, something that Jacob says, um, he says one of the classic ways to go about, you know, improving your thinking or changing your thinking is to seek out the best, the smartest, the most sensible, the most fair-minded representatives of the positions you disagree with. And then he says, if your first thought on reading that sentence is that smart, sensible, and fair-minded people are extremely rare among your opponents, I would ask you to reflect on whether you think they are any more common among those who agree with you. Um, So just this idea that, like, do you think there are smart people who disagree with you? Or is everybody who disagrees with you foolish or emotional or um, selfish? Or like, do, are they only the evil? Are they only the bad? Because um, then you really have to check yourself in that. Um, he says a little bit uh, later on, um, we must cultivate a more skeptical disposition about our own motives. Mm-hmm. And a more generous disposition toward the motives of others, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking about when it comes to humility. It may not be uh, sort of the facts are going to be altered or alterable. It may be the motive, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of as you're saying, and if and our motive would show if we're like, I can see no good in mm-hmm. in anybody over there, mm-hmm. right? It's like what 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 like mm-hmm. what kind of motive is that t- describing in you? that you cannot see, right, mm-hmm. anything charitable or be generous in any way. Um, I love that idea, though, that we would be more skeptical of our motives mm-hmm. and more generous about the motives of the people we disagree with, assuming the best about their motives mm-hmm. and being a lot more skeptical about the goodness of our motives. Um, seems to be a real key part of this. And as you mentioned, you know, for Christians, the weekly preaching, the daily reading, the the 
the life of prayer, um, if it's not drawing us in places of, of deeper and deeper humility, then there's something that's not happening in someone's mm-hmm. discipleship. You're not walking mm-hmm. strongly with the Lord if that's not part of that picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because Christianity and the culture war have been such good friends in this country mm-hmm. for so long, it can just be like a short circuit, you know, like, or a, just jump into the track real quick. We just have these charged phrases, slogans, default metaphors, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. that just keeps us from thinking things through mm-hmm. in a consistently humble way. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that, well, okay, so thinking about Christians, okay, in a community, um, another thing that he encourages um, throughout the book is that you would be in communities that would not just validate but gently challenge your opinions, right? That mm-hmm. you would not seek to surround yourself only with those with whom you always agree or, or who think you're amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, part of, surely part of being a part of a church <laughs> um, mm-hmm. would that it would be a community of people who, who would be able to gently challenge one another's thinking, um, you know, outside of the issue of Jesus is Lord or, you know, whatever sort of orthodox doctrinal sort of things we, we hold to as Christians. Um, these other things, which are really important, like you said, it's tough to even say secondary, but I know what you mean mm-hmm. by that. They're, they're crucial, but they're not the gospel. And so can we be in communities? Are we in communities where people can gently challenge uh, one another? Because I know a lot of times this last year, people leave their or have left their churches for um, some of those reasons, sometimes mm-hmm. for exactly these kinds of reasons that they just don't agree politically. They don't agree about um, the pandemic approach or whatever. Um, and so they'll find a group, a church that does. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what's your experience with Christians in, in communities? Do you find yourself in communities where there is this gentle challenging or do you have to actively find that make that cultivate that it's nice to say right but it's really hard um it's awkward you know i mean like people have just such different investments and you can Mm -hmm. just hit a landmine and be like what the (laughs) just happened you know yeah and i think for me the challenge is to just back off right when somebody Mm -hmm. drops a key phrase or key idea that i disagree with um i tend i as the the avoidant, the Enneagram nine peacemaker nice. person I am, I'm not going to like, well, did you know, but have you thought about like, that's just not my operating mode. So if somebody, um, you know, uses, as you mentioned, sort of a, a key phrase, um, I am not going to sort of jump down their throats and try to like, let's get into this. Uh, so my tendency tends to be actually the opposite problem where I will just sort of like gently veer away and, um, and so the challenge for me is to have to lean in a little bit more and ask good questions, not in an accusatory way, but in a, well, why, why do you think that? Or where is that coming from? Or what, how does that make you feel when you process through that? Rather than sort of hearing some key political or ideological slogan and then sort of, you know, moonwalking out of the room, <laughs> which tends <laughs> to be... <laughs> yeah tends to be how I operate more. Um, so I will say, I think it's hard because you, you can't really force diversity of, of thought in a community, right? Like people are attracted to certain communities because they think similarly, 
But I think what has been revealed in the past year is that, yeah, within my church community, there are a lot of disagreements. Um, there, uh, there's agreement on, on plenty of things and there's disagreement on plenty of things. And well, the challenge for me right now is what is worth pushing into um, and what is worth just sort of letting be. Um, and I'm sure you have that same experience in the classroom. It's different. And as a teacher, I can like push all the buttons because that's what I'm there for. Right. Um, and I have authority in that room of the adult versus the kids. But then when it comes to my peers and my church family, um, I do sort of have to reevaluate and remind myself, oh, I'm not like the, the teacher authority in this room. Um, and I need to check myself before I start pushing back on on their beliefs um about the even the the non-theological things right um when it comes to the theological ideas i i think i have a bit more authority there as a member of their church community to speak into it to offer thoughts or to you know to tell people to be wary of the road they're heading down Mm -hmm. but um yeah so that's been a really interesting tension that i'm still trying to figure out how to how to balance. Well, and I like what you're saying about even prioritizing. There are certain things, um, the reality of which is much more pressing than other things. Yes. Right? Um, there are certain things that that it's hard to just be like, well, it is what it is. You know, like some things it's like, well, that's, no, this is really important and this is going to mm-hmm. affect people in, in dramatic ways. This is really worth engaging mm-hmm. with a little bit more deeply for all its uncomfortability, for all we'd rather not maybe. Um, but I also like what you're saying about not just prioritizing maybe what those are, because that, that would already require a stepping back, right? Like, I don't know, how deeply embedded is someone in, you know, fighting against critical race theory mm-hmm. versus like how deeply embedded is someone in encouraging, you know, I don't know, vaccination or mm-hmm. how deeply embedded is someone in, you know, the way that the church is, you know, displaying the gospel, right? Like there has to be a way of saying this is of first importance. This is also important. This is not as important, and then maybe th- these things are not as in- not important at all. Or I really don't have any skin in this game. I don't know why I keep getting so worked up, <laughs> right? Like the, yeah. the if you could just even differentiate the things that you know something about versus how like passionate you get, because right. um, I know some people who know a lot about certain things, and so I want to listen to them. But I know like almost more passion comes from people who clearly don't know mm-hmm. about those same things, but they're living off of a social media meme world and they're they're sloganing you know their way through things. Um, so differentiating what should be engaged with, even if it is awkward. But then also what you said, and obviously it's true in the classroom as as well, but um, asking questions and not in like some like ridiculously leading way, but like as a genuine thing to Mm -hmm. discover why and how someone is thinking about this thing, Um, asking how they got there, trying to to understand them and their motive and their, you know, their community uh, better. Um, seems to me fundamental as a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. To humanizing the RCO, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Christians aren't supposed to have a lot of RCOs, right? Like right. we're not supposed to find people like disgusting and awful and the worst thing ever and and never shall I ever, you know, associate with so-and-so. Right. Um, so humanizing humility and then humanizing your your the person with whom you disagree. 
mm-hmm. um, seem to be non-negotiable. If you want to think mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. you have to engage in uh, a humble assessment of yourself, maybe a, a more calm, like prioritizing of what really matters. And then, um, and then some way of humanizing the people that you're disagreeing with so that you could actually hear, right. learn, right? Because um, as, as Jacob says so often in this book, you know, you can't really say you understand someone's position unless your account of that position is something they would agree to. Exactly. And that's, that's the, I'm trying to do a lot of that work with my students recently of, I even had them do an essay this year where they had to um, explain a two-sided issue and explain both sides impartially. Like you're successful in this essay if I don't know which side you agree with in the way that you can honestly present. Well, the people who, um, you know, uh, pro-vegan or anti-vegan, like you need to, I need to know both arguments clearly. Um, one student did uh, pro-population, or I guess it, it would be more like belief in overpopulation versus overpopulation as a myth, right? Those mm-hmm. sort of, I need to know both sides impartially, and so do you. Um, otherwise, we are going to sound like fools who know one or two things about a, an obscure topic, and then we just go for it. Um, avoiding that, uh, that's, that's the straw man, right? Mm-hmm. Of the straw man fallacy of saying, well, they believe this. And I actually encountered that a lot this year um, in the classroom with seniors. You know, we're talking about all the topics a lot of them voted for the first time and so I had a bunch of students say well you know that side wants to def- they want to get rid of the police they want to defund the police they want to get rid of the police and I said like do you have you read about like what they mean when they say that though like they don't most people not there are some people but most people don't actually mean I want no more police officers and they're like really I thought that's what it because they say defund the police. And it's like, yeah, I know. It's it's one of those moments where the language is coming in conflict because this side knows what they mean and this side is interpreting what they mean differently and all agreeing. And so that was a really important conversation and me not trying to steer them one way or the other, but just realizing, hey, you have, these are two different circles who aren't talking to each other. Um, as this, as you know, what we've been talking about all year and through through this Jacobs book, if there isn't any bridge between the two, um, then the language they're using, the ideas, are just going to become more and more insular and isolated from the other group. Um, and that was really important for me to see as a teacher of like seeing that in action um, and, and having students realize, you know, that certain slogans and phrases mean something to different people. Um, and they probably don't mean it as aggressively as you think they do. It's just they're like, and so you have to actually get to know what somebody means when they say defund the police or whatever the phrase is. Mm-hmm. What do you, when you say that, what do you actually mean? Yeah. Before you critique another person's argument, make sure you can express their argument to their satisfaction. So if I was to come, you know, yeah, and say, I think whatever critical race theory should or should not be taught. Um, what do you mean by critical race theory? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean this. And the people who actually teach it, for example, uh, would have to be like, yeah, that's what we mean. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be really hard to do because it would imply mm-hmm. you had to do some reading. Mm-hmm. You'd have to find out, as you said in that earlier comment, who the smart sort of people who were actually engaged in the uh, right. opposing position were because you would have to find the very best version of the argument of what critical race theory is or mm-hmm. intersectionality or whatever whatever thing. Um, and, and you'd have to be able to say, okay, this is what they say. When, this is mm-hmm. what they mean when they say this. This is mm-hmm. not what maybe my group <laughs> thinks right. when they hear it. As you said, the defund the police line is, is a really mm-hmm. perfect example of that. Um, it sets off all sorts of other flags mm-hmm. in people who are like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, and so making sure you're at least understanding the position, mm-hmm. right? And the argument yeah. that is being made right, without just dragging it through your lens of usually very passionate, some emotional mm-hmm. um, community, you know, solidarity, like, ah, right. my brother's a policeman, <laughs> you know, like, like mm-hmm. totally understandable emotional stuff, but not how to think well. Mm-hmm. And even I had, you know, this goes to the the church and theological issues as well. One of my students uh, decided he wanted to write his paper on um, the women women leading churches, like women pastors. Mm-hmm. And some students, even when he was, he said like, "Oh, I'm going to do the this is my topic of like whether you can ad- ordain women as pastors." Some students in the class were like, <coughs> like immediately disgusted, just <laughs> at like the fact that you would even research such a topic. Um, and I was like, whoa, guys, you really, we've got to check this. Cause he just said he wants to research it. He didn't even say, <laughs> he didn't even say his position. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, but for those theological issues or for, you know, even we had the number of people leave my church over the question of infant baptism and things. And it's like, okay, w- the, those are moments where it can become a, a caricature. Like you can be, you can caricaturize each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and say like, well, they just, you know, they just hate women and don't want them to be pastors or like they're just angry at their husbands. And so they want to lead, you know, it's like, oh, it's usually it's much more complex than that. <laughs> oh, your role. Yeah. OK. So when when Jacobs, this is not a very long book. You can you can read it, you know, in maybe not one sitting. That's pretty intense that that kid did that. I know. It's um, not, yeah. <laughs> but but um, but, you know, a few days or a what's week. the audible read? Probably three or four hours. Yeah, it's only four hours. Yeah. Um, she turns to me, Zach. Did you notice that? She turned to me immediately. What's the audible read? I know actually read books I, um, I have nothing against totally audible. right on <laughs> i have nothing i was against listening it. to it this morning but i had gotten it i gotten it weeks ago and i and i had listened to it then too but one of the things that happens that's so helpful is uh is that checklist at the end yes so maybe we can give some people uh, a little the, the checklist that he comes up with by the end of this book to sort of just say okay uh, real practical stuff. Like, give us the, mm-hmm. give us the things that we can say, uh, ask questions of ourselves, and make sure we are we are moving towards uh, thinking well. Oh man, those are all golden. If you honestly, um, dear listeners, if you Google Alan Jacobs Thinking Persons Checklist, it'll pop up. Um, I think it's on the Gospel Coalition. They like posted it there, and there's just twelve amazing action steps. Some of my favorites, I mean, his first one is when faced with provocation to respond to what someone has said, give it five minutes. Give it five minutes. Take a walk, weed the garden, chop some vegetables, <laughs> um, which is true. When somebody says, when you're just like, and we all know that moment, right? Like our heart is racing. We get flushed. We're like, I can't believe it. <sighs> just give it five minutes. Don't respond to the text right away. Um don't tweet or post anything. Just take a minute. Because this is, I think we've talked about this earlier. 
Um, you can't respond to everything. You can't have an opinion on everything. You can't. You just can't. There's you not. You can't know everything. Can't know everything. Shockingly. There's a a new book out and that sort of um, called something the news. A Theological Inquiry into the News by Jeffrey Bilbro. And in it, he talks a lot about Henry David Thoreau and how in the 1800s, people were like, how are we going to deal with a vast amount of information that's coming? Now we have the telegraph and the train and we have evening newspapers and morning newspapers. Anyway, um, so that this is a centuries long question of like, there's too much information for you to know. So you can't respond to everything. So give it five minutes at least. Um, I'm somebody who needs 24 hours to process. 24 hours. I'm an internal processor. Mm-hmm. I'll wake up the next day like with a different sense of it than I have the night before. So, yeah. um, so that's what I love. Um, another one of his points that I love. I love them all. Uh, remember, well, this is similar. Remember that you don't have to respond to what everyone else is responding to in order to signal your virtue and right-mindedness. So again, that give it. Five and that minutes. goes for people who who also use that against people, right? Yeah. Who talk about uh, certain groups, virtue signaling. Um, they tend to engage in the same activity, even mm-hmm. if they usually uh, assess others in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this, 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 take a step back. Like, where, what reality are you a part of here? John and I were talking just uh, a couple weeks ago on the podcast about the importance of home mm-hmm. and a place that you're a mm-hmm. part of where people can actually interact with the way you're thinking Mm -hmm. and it has to it has to be able to live in a way like if if everyone around you is just constantly being turned away and like you know if your thoughts can't live with people like Mm -hmm. if if it's like it's not interacting with the reality of other people with bodies and motives and complexity um that that should be a test of your thinking as well Mm -hmm. right not just this always Mm -hmm. online kind of ism of needing to be able to participate in this pure ideological way mm. um so yeah take five minutes <laughs> sorry you can hear my it's summertime summer has sprung my children are in the back laughing and crying uh, over the splash they seem like they're having a great time uh, my daughter is always at a thousand percent so whatever it is she's experiencing all of it <laughs> give it five minutes girl oh my sweetheart give it five <laughs> Um, okay, give us another uh, yeah. thinking person's action step. Yeah, so to, to that point, gravitate as best you can in every way you can towards people who seem to value genuine community and can handle disagreement with equanimity. He talks about in the book the idea of membership versus the inner ring. Um, membership always reminds me of Wendell Berry, which we can talk about for book recommendations. But have a genuine membership in, in a community that... Uh, can handle disagreement, um, accepts you as a whole person, isn't just there to um, shoot down anybody who disagrees with them versus a community that is exclusive. And if you disagree, you will be shunned. um, And they have like, and where you have an investment in not changing your mind. That's, that's the dangerous sort of toxic um, where I can't change my mind because I will lose everything or I can't, um, I'll never change my mind because I'm never interacting with anybody who disagrees with me. Mm. So that's what you have to avoid versus having membership and having, um, as he says, gravitate as best you can um, with people who will be unfazed by the ups and downs. And again, I just feel the need to like caveat, like I think there are 
there are instances where somebody's choices have to be like a real like, whoa, you have got to stop. Like genuine intervention is needed. But I think as we're talking about, um, we're not talking about like a community that would accept you even if you walk away from your wife when, you know, like, right. right. right yeah. I'm not talking about those extremes. I'm talking about more the like um, the p- belief systems that are um, going to build and change and grow um, as we live our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I mean, at one point, you know, just, and people have been saying this, but it, acting with the awareness that people who agree with you won't always be in charge, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, just thinking about the reality of how changing and quickly changing the landscape could be yeah. trying to form your, your group around those who just happen to have power at this moment could really set you up for a problem yeah. if you're not in power in the next, or it could make you desperate to always cling to having power, right? Mm-hmm. But having a, a community that is more of this membership, more of a belonging, more about seeing each other as human beings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, of course, you know, in a church, you know, as, as, as people created by the Lord and, and, uh, and drawn to his salvation, you know, hopefully you'd be able to stick with each other um, through some challenges uh, and be able, as you say, to determine, is this a really critical, crucial sort of life or death issue? Mm -hmm. Or is this one that maybe we need to keep talking about? And uh, maybe it's not one of those, but it seems important, but it's a little more open how it's going to play out or what Mm -hmm. this will mean or if this will affect what we think it will affect. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being able to have a community that is not sort of yeah, all or nothing on every single issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're saying this, I know people feel like, well, those communities don't exist. That's why I left the place I was, right? And one of the things he tries to say in the book is sort of because you can't make someone else this, you have to be this. Yeah. So it's more about taking ownership for yourself. Are you the kind of person who, et cetera, right? It really is right. like you can only sort of cover your plot you know as far as if you want to be a thinking person uh moving toward humility uh humanizing you know these other people in in your that are opposed to some of the things you think um and i would say that too with the church right like you kind of have to be that person Mm -hmm. you can't just look around for this perfect community that's all doing this um that's how those communities never form right Mm -hmm. is is that they they are looked for but they're not sort of lived into or or lived out of um, so yeah. do, anything else that stands out to you, uh, well, either from us, just, just from that, that yeah. point, right. Um, in one of my classes at, at church, we talk a lot about the non-anxious presence, right. And, and, um, Bishop Scarlet at St. Matthew's calls it a recollected state. Like to your point, the, if you want to change the community you're in, you can only control yourself and when you respond, you know, non-anxiously to people who are really anxious, they're going to adjust to you. Like if you just become hyped up and, and respond to their anxiety with your anxiety, well, then you're just perpetuating it. But if, if someone's really, um, you know, flustered or frustrated by something and you are, you just remain collected, um, then they will sort of, then their heart rate's going <laughs> to meet yours. Mm. Right. So I think, yeah, to your, uh, it is, my heart does break for people who are genuinely in search of uh, a healthy community and can't seem to find it. I would encourage you to, to, to continue hunting. Like don't give up hope. They, they do exist. Um, 
there was a lot of years in my life where I thought, when am I going to find people who, you know, have, have these shared values? So it is out there. Um, be, be patient, be in prayer about it. And then where you find yourself, don't feel like you have to leave everything behind. Um, just operate within the system you're in, in a way that is how you'd want other people to operate towards you, right? So that listening, being present, yeah, it, people will respond to it and the people who want that will be, will be attracted to it. Um, and so I think that's something I've been learning a lot um, recently is just the need to not always respond. Um, but if I think it through and ponder it myself, other people who want to have that more contemplative mode will find you. Another yeah. thing he says, and this is going to be our segue, okay, um, is spend more time with books and less we time love online. Books. We love books. But it's interesting, right? Because books are slower, longer, right? Like it, they, mm -hmm. they do, I'm thinking about the non-anxious presence. A book is like a non-anxious presence oh, yeah. compared to a post mm -hmm. or a blog or certainly a tweet or a comment yeah. or a slogan or a soundbite or, or a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. um, a book does like slow the heart rate in that mm -hmm. way, right? It, it, it brings you into a different kind of time mm -hmm. and a different kind of space. And yet it also, it also has a lot to do with sort of humanizing people who are not me, right? Mm -hmm. Like bringing to life in a slower, more complex way, the experiences, perspectives, histories of people that I am not, right, that, that are other than me. He has that quote uh, from the Roman um, poet Terence, hmm. um, where he says, uh, Terence says, you know, I am a human being, and so nothing human is alien to me. Mm. right like yeah it, i feel like we we're giving that up we're kind of saying well i don't have that experience or i didn't come from that yeah. background or i don't so i can't actually speak to or understand anything because it's not me and yet the whole point of literature is the opposite of that um that human beings share something that is that that transcends um you know time or place or background it doesn't eliminate it, but that mm -hmm. there is this pathway that is possible to understand, not to fully be or replace or something, right? Um, but I think it's really important not to give up this, this reality or this possibility that we could truly um, see things through other people's perspectives, even if it is dismissed as, well, that's just mm -hmm. imagination or whatever. The imagination was always an unbelievably serious faculty, right, for most thinkers, that you had this faculty and this ability to, to think into things and places and scenarios that are not available to you just by experience, right? That it was a form of sort of um, extended experience. Mm. Um, so the idea of a book being a slowing down, mm -hmm. um, it also being an introduction or a... Um, a humbling thing where you are you're on it's time and if we're talking about literature in particular obviously uh, that's a caveat but if we're talking about literature then especially um the idea that you could um come alongside um other kinds of people and other kinds of places other kinds of experiences mm -hmm. and then that 
somehow does contribute or, or can contribute, I should say, to the development of, of, of character, of humility, of the things that, that matter. He says, if you want to develop your thinking, develop your character. Right. Right. And so we really mean a lot when we talk about reading books. And yet um, the fact is, um, even those of us who talk a lot about reading books struggle to read books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. struggle to make the time, struggle to slow down, mm-hmm. struggle to stay focused, struggle to plan it out. Um, so if we were segueing to summer reading for the podcast listening audience, and you and I wanted to encourage and stir and mm-hmm. motivate, um, hopefully part of this segue is motivating, right? To, to yes. think well, yes, yes. Um, to be a person who, whose character is deepening in these ways. Um, reading books is actually an incredibly wonderful way of engaging that. How would you sort of push us into summer or begin to point us or motivate us in that direction um, for for like or, or maybe just giving us a practical way of approaching how yeah. to do summer reading? What do you so, think? So this is controversial. You can push back. But I'm a firm believer in going with your gut mm. in reading. Like if you if I don't want to read it or I'm not into it, I'll I'll stop it. And just like toss it aside. I don't need to finish a book Mm -hmm. if it's because life is short. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes, you know, for whatever reason, a book doesn't. And so I have to check that with, you know, laziness, obviously. And I have to check it against the sort of the repugnancies of like, oh, do I just not like it? So I'm throwing it across the room. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think especially if you're someone who is not a massive reader, but you would like to read more forcing yourself into something you're not enjoying is not going to build up the love and affection for it. So, um, I always, I am always reading things that either have like, they're just sort of nagging in the back of my head, like, Oh, I would like to read that. Or honestly, if there is just an attraction to a book, like that sounds interesting or that sounds fun. I go with it because we do have different moods. Uh, this summer, I just kind of want to read a bunch of fantastical escapes Um, I don't really feel the need to do a lot of, you know, gritty 21st century um, (laughs) novels. I've done enough of those recently and always sort of found them wanting. I would much rather read um, things that have either stood the test of time a little bit more or are kind of um, just something a little bit out there. So I'm I'm a firm believer in sort of going with your gut in that regard um, because you that's the book you're going to read. It's very freeing, too. Yeah. Um, I think even just a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about my plan, right? And I, I'm like, okay, here's my plan, right? This number of books, these serious, like, big tomes yeah. is what I'm going to tackle. And then, like, uh, I don't know, a week into it, Zach's laughing right now uh, <laughs> while I'm saying this. Um, but I had, like, this really great summer plan, and it looked really good. Like, it, yeah. it would play well oh, if, I, like, sure. if I showed everyone. I'd be like, look at the books I'm going to read this summer. Wow, Laura. wow, wow. Um, but as I, like, thought it through, it was two books that I had abandoned for the reason you just <laughs> you just said. I was just like, I just, I just don't care at all oh, about man. these characters. Um, and so I was like, okay. As, as the week turned into the second week, um, as of a few days ago, no, no, just the last week, um, I settled on a couple things that I knew I really wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And they don't take the boxes that I had, right? No. They weren't like the, the big classic whatevers. Um, but they were, for me, places that I just, that nagging on the heart. It was like, I, I always just want to just sit down 
and just enjoy this you mm-hmm. know, either again or you know um, at a deeper level or whatever it might be. So I I totally feel that, especially for people who it's super hard to even take the time to do it or establish right. the rhythm. It's got to be something you enjoy. It's got to right. be on some level just something that's fun or something that's really yeah. interesting. And I feel like Christians approach reading often with this burden that it always has to be like Bonhoeffer or it always has to be like this dense, tough, hard to read, like in translation texts. Um, if it's serious, Laura, it I must know. be burdensome. We're so, so serious. Um, so even um, my pastor's on sabbatical right now and he was like, thoughts on books? Nice. And I, I didn't give him any... F- nonfiction I guess so I told him to read Gilead because I was like this is what a pastor should read on sabbatical <laughs> Marilyn Robinson's Gilead um but to that yeah I'm just like you know give yourself a find pleasure and enjoyment um and if you have a desire for like a dense philosophical theological text like yeah do it there is a, mm. a pleasure that comes from finishing something massive like that like I, I read this I did it um but yeah, but if you don't want to and you just like feel like you're being forced into it or or if there's some social pressure of like to be, you know, to be in or to, to know I have to finish this, then I don't know. I'm not into that. I'm I and I feel uh, kind of guilty about it lately. I feel like I should be reading more like solid classics, but um, I think there's there's benefits to just sort of pursuing the sort of things you love, even if it's a reread or even if it's something that i don't know may not be remembered in 10 years if someone's like well i don't know what i love because i don't really read oh yeah um, then, then like you know what we would say is like oh we'll take some recommendations from people that you trust or something like that or mm-hmm. from us yes <laughs> so if you were to start throwing out some titles where you say look oh, i th- i i would recommend this to anybody or i'm going to be tackling this one i'm looking forward to this what mm. kind of stuff if you were to get like some practical titles on the on the on the shelf here i'm gonna so yeah it's just so hard because there's there's different moods right there's there's classics that i think everybody should read but people tend to sort of hear that as some sort of mandate so i think i'm going to do sort of alternative Maybe not so much classics because you know they're there. You know you should read Dickens and Austin and Steinbeck. No, I and will them. say Dickens and Austin and Steinbeck, but I will say those are genuinely enjoyable for people. Yes. And, and I, I mean that. Like there are classics I that agree. are like you're reading it because it's a classic. But like something like Dickens is just like the master storyteller. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. So, and you can't, yeah. you can't ever go wrong Sidle with up if you, Emma. If you're interested. All that, yeah. Okay, give give me one Dickens, give me one Austin. That if someone's like, I've never, but I've, but I'm interested. Um, well, Austin, I would say do Emma or Sense and Sensibility, whichever one you haven't seen the movie of. There you go. Um, Pride and Prejudice, we've all seen. Keira Knightley, come on. Uh, but yeah, so I love both of those. They're funny and quirky and um, a good time. Dickens, if you've never, I mean, you think you know Oliver Twist, but you probably don't. You probably, um, and it's so accessible and a, a good time. Yeah. So in terms of accessibility, those, um, for whatever reason, high school teachers always assign great expectations. It's my least favorite. So if you read Great Expectations as a ninth grader and Ooh. you hated it, I didn't like it either. And I mm. love Dickens now. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say, yeah. Oliver Twist is really accessible. David Copperfield is great, but it's massive, so people get scared of, of it. 
but he's just a good time, especially if you want to get lost in a very different world. It's exactly. It, it, that's exactly what it is. It really is this beautiful sort of other land. Mm-hmm. And he is just, he is the storyteller, storyteller, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, in highly a, recommend. That would be a great summer read. In a very strange twist of um, one of my favorite authors, and I maybe your favorite. I don't know how you feel about this person. One of my favorite authors has actually been chosen as like Oprah's Books of the Year. Marilyn Robinson. Oh, there you go. So um, that's kind of a strange. Now you can only find the books with the little Oprah sticker on them. <laughs> so it's very strange to have this person who in my mind was sort of an obscure, not obscure, but... Once kind of niche. Time. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so Marilyn Robinson's Gilead Trio, if you need some like soul enriching fiction, are the ones. The first one's, yeah, Gilead, and then Lila, and the new one is Jack, which I haven't read. I would like to read that this summer, though I've heard it's the more serious of the three. Um, I you, can't go wrong with that one. I always say. Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, you can't go wrong with. Um, another like theological meandering read. But to spice it up, to change it up. Um I was gonna say you were talking about fantastical escapes. I know. These are some these are some fan fantasies. If you um are getting out of this pandemic and you're kind of you want some dystopian life. Um, which is not for everybody, but if you want to, let's say a, a hopeful dystopia, if nice. you may, uh, station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel is about, uh, you know, after two thirds of the world gets wiped out by a plague. <laughs> uh, it's about a, a troop that travels around the wasteland of America performing Shakespeare. Let's go. Because, uh, Oh, what's their slogan? I'm forgetting it now. It's from a Star Trek episode, but it's like survival is not enough is something like what they say. Like we have to do more than survive. <laughs> yeah, amen. So I love that one. Station 11. Station 11. Good title. If you, but that's not everybody wants a dystopia right now. Fairplay. If you want, I probably, I might've talked about this one on a different pod, but, uh, I read, the 10,000 Doors of January? Yeah, you did. It, well, it ended up uh, for the patron saints. Oh, right? It's it a, a good book, fantastical book, uh, escape. Shelf. So, so what is it again? 10,000 10, Doors of January is a uh, light and charming contemporary novel, uh, fantastical novel about a girl who is able to like walk through these doors, magic portals to other lands. So I found it charming. Another category of books that you can speak to a little bit more, I think. This is sort of your jam. Um, the light and charming category. <laughs> that's, which, the, that's my jam? The light and charming category? Yeah, all creatures great and small. Oh, well, of course. If you need to escape to Britain. You I, have to, yeah. <laughs> if you're a human being. Tell us about that one. Why, you, why is being, that the love of your life? Uh, it's hard. I don't know. It's um, exactly what we were talking about. It is, it, to me, it's the kind of thing I would, I would give to like a pastor. It would be like, you know what? People. And, uh, you know, it can be hard to love people. And, mm-hmm. um, and this guy is a veterinarian in a small town, or at least in a small area uh, in the north of England. And, um, and he writes beautifully. And it's memoir-ish, right? It's based mm-hmm. on his actual life. Um, but there's something about the location, and there's something about his heart that means he's able to see charitably the most sort of, like, tough 
brutal kind of customers, but he's also able to see with a lot of curiosity how mm -hmm. funny and and curious and interesting people are. Mm -hmm. And so for me, James Harriet's novels um, are not just fascinating, but they are like the warmest kind of escape, which is not an escape. It really helps you to like appreciate how incredible people are mm -hmm. in the most sort of ordinary things you could just see if I was in that situation I I probably wouldn't see those things yeah and it's very like instructive and it's just wonderful him particular as a narrator as the as the eyes through which we get to see um, there's a sweetness there's a kindness there's a gentleness things that are just so hard to find <laughs> in in our time and place and mm -hmm. so it really does slow you down and it really does introduce you to a perspective a way of seeing and a way of thinking in a way of being that feels to me just much more sort of Christian hmm. and in some ways, unfortunately, so different from my impulses and my sort of cynicism or my hmm. sarcasm or whatever it might be. Um, but it's not heavy. It's not serious. It's, it's light, but it has a warmth and a generosity that I just don't remember finding in, in many books that way mm. so i i couldn't recommend more uh, so James we're discussing <laughs> all creatures great and small so <laughs> it's just they're just, just beautiful you just you know each chapter you're just like oh. yeah i don't know it's just one of those things that reminds you of what a miracle it is to be a person hmm. and um and the animals are as much a part of that as anything else the you know just the the complex beauty of the lord's creation and the simple joys of life and the challenges like it it's all there uh, but it feels like it's not trying to get anywhere. It feels like it's just enjoying the world mm. as it is. And I think there's not a lot of those out there. So absolutely, hugely S recommend. Something I find myself reading every, I tend to pick up in the summertime when I want something light sitting on the beach. I love uh, Bill Bryson. You ever read any Bill Bryson? Uh, I know Ranger Zach, for example, loves himself some <laughs> Bill Bryson. And he also loves Jaber Crow. He's always happy when you mention oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Bill Bryson is, he's done a number of things, actually. He's more in like a researchy mode these days. But he started out doing a bunch of travel uh, memoirs. My favorite of his is called In a Sunburned Country. And it's basically him alone wandering through Australia. And he is very dry and very... Um, he has like a good British insulting humor. Um, but I love that. Or he's done the journeys through America and journeys through England and they're just little travel memoirs. So if you are feeling the need to escape in that way, mm. um, and, and tickets are expensive tickets and are everything's expensive. booked expensive. things are booked, escape rental cars, the books. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a great one. Bill Bryson. If you just need to laugh, if you, yeah, if you sort of think British humor is, and you want to see, he's actually an American who moved to England, but he's just sort of wandering through the world um, with a, I don't want to say cynical, because that sounds negative, but he's just sort of like has a biting humor that I enjoy immensely. <laughs> so what do you, what do you, is there a theme you return to in the summers, something you tend to read? Uh, it's interesting. You said travel. I usually try to, um, revisit Patrick Lee Fermer's uh, travel accounts. I'm so, not familiar with those. Uh, a Time of Gifts is a book that I've given yes. several people. Okay, I've um, heard of that one. Yeah, and he there's there's a trilogy there uh, that tracks his his walking journey, more or less walking journey, um, between World War One and World War Two from London to Constantinople. Wow. I mean, and so what that what that particular trilogy is able to do, it captures like 
Europe before it disappears. It's mm. like this last golden moment of of sort of Christendom, you know, kind of of the ancient world of Europe mm-hmm. um, before the Second World War, and it's it's finally sort of gone. Wow. Um, and so it has about it it has about it a romance that was real, mm-hmm. but that we don't have access to anymore. And so it's it's an incredible time capsule moment. And he is one of the best writers of English prose I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, so it pays in that way as well. Mm-hmm. It's in no rush to get anywhere. If you are, you'll hate it. You'll throw <laughs> it across the room. But it's the kind of book that I would read a couple pages before I go mm-hmm. to bed. More like a meditation mm-hmm. or a reflection, right? Kind of like I would read Gilead. I yeah. wouldn't read Gilead to get to the end of it. I would read it to enjoy you know, a paragraph, right? Mm-hmm. So Patrick Lee Fermer, A Time of Gifts, as the first in that trilogy. He's written many other things, but um, the probably the best for me, British travel writer, or at least in that genre. But capturing a moment um, after World War One, before the Second World War, just an incredible, sad, heartbreaking, but beautiful world still um, between London to Constantinople. An incredible writer. I mean, I couldn't. I'm excited about that. That sounds great. It's beautiful, and it's its own world. And it's like I said, if you're like, I need plot, pick up another book or read it another book alongside this. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if you just want to soak in beautiful prose and a beautiful slow experience of a young guy just making his way Mm -hmm. across um, Europe in that time, it is just staggeringly beautiful. Um, So yeah, highly recommend that as well. I always recommend Watership Down, but since we're doing like whatever, I'm just going to keep pushing the rabbits. You got to read Richard Adams' Watership Down. Incredible writer, uh, unbelievable story. If you've seen the whatevers, I hope you haven't, if you, just put it aside and read the book. <laughs> it's so beautifully written. It's such a good story. It's very much sort of the Odyssey um, with rabbits. Um, and and that makes it even more sort of beautiful in, in some deep ways. Um, but it's also just incredibly enjoyable. So it, mm-hmm. to me, it has that quality of like a classic, but with the without the weight of it feeling like, oh, this is a classic. You know, let's let's all right. put on our serious hats. It's like, no, this is a really good story with really good characters. And don't be thrown off that they're bunny rabbits. Okay, okay. I won't be thrown. Don't be thrown. Someone Ooh. out there is like, oh, read about bunny rabbits. So whoever that person is, uh, don't be, don't. Don't think that way. Man. Just read it. I mean, there is, and there is something to revisiting. If you're somebody who is on the struggle just trying to pick up a book. Um, there is no shame in the game of going with something you loved when you were 13. Yeah. Like I've, if you read it, reread a wrinkle in time or something like that. Do it. Oh man. That's so great. It's so fun, especially like to read it like with yeah. a totally different perspective. Yeah. It's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And even this, uh, earlier this year for book, cl- I guess it was last year. Uh, or I don't know when that was for book club. We read Dune, which I had never read, but so many people had said, Oh, I read this when I was 16 and I loved it. (laughs) And then they reread it again as in adulthood. And they're like, still great. Checks out. And so it wasn't really my, uh, it's not really my jam. I enjoyed it. The audible was amazing. Yes. Um, but yeah, like go for some of those. We read with some family members uh, last year in deep pandemic. We reread Hatchet because there was little kids in the bunch. It's like, oh, this is so fun. I read this in fourth grade. So, yeah, 
Go for that too. Read about bunny rabbits. Do it. And and I'm telling you, you're not gonna you're not gonna regret reading about these rabbits, man. You're not gonna regret (laughs) it. So Watership Down, Richard Adams. uh, But yeah, do something fun. Do something that will 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 genuinely compel you to read Mm because you're gonna have to just set time. You're gonna have to have that kind of discipline. You're gonna have to prioritize it. You have to put the phone away. You might have to, you know, say we're not gonna watch ten different Netflix shows. You know, Um, we might have to. Just to, uh, well, I mean, I don't want to like yeah. blow up your spot or anything, but deleting some social media for summer can't be bad. Look at us. Let's detox a little bit. I need to. I'm so done with posting. So done. So I was like, yeah, those hours. Take away the options of wasting hours on YouTube reading about rabbits. or Instagram and read about rabbits. Uh, it sounds so much better. It is so much better. <laughs> Anything else that you're like, I gotta gotta tuck this in I mean, for I've, a summer read. I have re- recommended this to everybody, and I've never regretted it. Um, a lot came out in the last five years or so. Gentlemen in Moscow. Oh. Russian Revolution. It's so beautiful. It's charming. It is so charming. So I've no, I've never regretted that one. It's um, so lovely too, and it, it really is a different yeah. world. Mm-hmm. It has all that romance, has all the sort of I don't know the nostalgia for. The nostalgia we have no right for, like we have no right to because we didn't actually live that. Yep. But man, is it beautiful. Yeah. Highly recommend that. So as those well. are ones I. Gentlemen in Moscow. I yeah, I never regret recommending that. So or just any summer's a great time for some Agatha Christie mysteries too. I don't oh. know. There's so much. I'm a, I'm into the spy stuff. Really. So John Le Carre. Um, Ooh. Yeah. So the spy who came in from the cold. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with that. No. Um, and he, he John Le Carre gets pretty complex and it can be a little tough sometimes but um yeah I, i'm big into a good spy novel these days and uh the spy who came in from the cold by john lacare is a, a classic for all the right reasons mm-hmm. um, so yeah definitely recommend yeah good summer is great for genre fiction yeah get a mystery get us get just, a spy get us thrill don't get feel a guilty fantasy. no just, just just read yeah um this is what i'm reading that's guilt stuff. He, just, not, he no, just shows no, me some big tone. This is joy. This is Sir joy for Thomas me, but Brown. this is the replacing all the other things I was talking about. Wow. So my summer is going to be me and Sir Thomas Brown. He was, I uh, don't know who that is. So my PhD um, I did on 17th. Uh, well, I'm a 17th century guy. Um, so that was like my area, right? My primary area. And um, this was one of the, the guys that I, I, I discovered over the last 15 years. Um, and he is just a beautiful soul. Okay. And he's an incredible writer, and he's so strange. Um, he was a doctor. He was a lay theologian, which everybody was in the 17th century. Nah. <laughs> um, but he's just so curious, so interested in the whole world. And uh, there's only this one really, I mean, this is like the, the biography. One. And it's done by someone, Reed Barber, who I know and is a sort of literary person. And so it's a biography that is going to blend in his writing. So I'm going to read this. This is a big book. You can't see this. It's heavy. I had to invest in it. It's 500 some pages. To anybody else, this would be like why you don't read. Yeah. Yeah, It'd be like you see a book like this and you're like, that's why I don't read. Um, but for me, this was replacing the things I felt like I was supposed to read this summer. Ooh, yeah. This was what I actually want to read. So mm-hmm. I'm going to spend the summer with Sir Thomas Brown, A Life, which is this big biography. And then I'm going to read his his works, which I've read, uh, some of them not in full, but his works in particular, uh, dear listener, Hydrotaphia, his reflection on urn burial and on death. 
and on oh. bones and wow. on uh yeah there's a discovery of this like these shards and then they discover like an old sort of sort of cemetery in this plot wow. of land in england and he just starts writing about it in this most sort of baroque labyrinthine way that it's just only the so 17th century become a do. patreon supporter <laughs> and this I will, will be not a inflict special this on episode. anybody but um i'm just 95 minutes just uh, my <laughs> Um, and the Garden of Cyrus and uh, re- um, Religio Medici um, and the Christian morals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read as much Thomas Brown as I can, and I might not read anything else, mm. which is like a real freeing thing mm-hmm. to say. And I'm saying Do it out it. loud so that I don't, I don't I labor under the, the weight and burden of an imaginary list that I had. Yeah. This is just what I want to read. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to spend time with dear Sir Thomas Brown and his strange little mind and his wonderful writing. Um, yeah, he's so peculiar. He gets like picked up by random people later on. And they'll say like little things about him in the 19th century about the wonderful mind of Sir Thomas Brown. He'll become like a, a, a crime detective person in someone's story mm. at some okay. point. He's just this weird guy um, who wrote beautifully, was skeptical about himself. This is like what I want to be more like, right? Skeptical about himself as a person, really interested in how he thinks, just to come full circle. All the things we're talking about really put himself under that lens. So was like rarely dogmatic about anything, mm-hmm. um, but was really interested in how a person thinks and why and how our associations are connected to all our other associations. And his writing just sort of like wanders out into the world that way. Mm. Um, and I find it to just be unbelievably beautiful. So, okay, Sir Thomas Brown is my summer reading. Um, and what a thrill. Holding this thing is heavy. Yeah, it's a, that's a beast. Oxford University Press, but I got it used. Good. It, you know, like some of these books are like $150 because yeah. you can't get them. They got to ship them over. But I got it for like $45. Score. And that was a big deal for me. Score. Um, we want people to read. We hope Please. people will read. Yeah, we're read. pleading for people to mm-hmm. read. We even did a whole thing where we're saying, you know, to think well, be good to read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so may this summer, may this summer be a summer of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, any kind of reading. Uh, all kinds of reading, yeah. right? Like, don't be ashamed of the game, uh, unless it's trash. You know I mean? Don't read trash, but don't just, be ashamed of yeah. things that are fun, right? <laughs> Sorry, just a few titles appeared in my mind. I, I know. Like, don't do beware, that. Beware, <laughs> yeah, beware. Um, no, but if if you need more recommendations, Ooh. we would, I mean, this is our delight. This is our joy. And aren't you on Goodreads? Don't you have, like, a whole thing uh, in the world y- where you, like, Yeah, I do. aren't you, I hate to do the social media thing, but don't you have, like, posts on your Instagram? I sometimes, I, I, what you're reading? so I'm not currently using Instagram these days, but I, the only thing I did that anybody liked, I am private, so sorry, guys. <laughs> the only thing I did that was I would post book reviews, and people were like, thank you so much. Because it, it, it tells them what not to read and what they yeah. might actually so want to I, read. So I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, so yeah, but there's part of me that would love to be like a bookstagram influencer person. But <laughs> nah, I just keep it all private. So sorry, sorry world. So but but. Happy, happy through the Babylon with Love community to continue recommending things. Because yeah, I don't know. The reading life is a good one. And I was just talking to someone today on the phone down here. Man, I'm so tired of small talk. Heavens, I'm so tired of small, especially like post-pandemic small talk. But if you come up to them and you're like, I just finished this book that was wild, you know, (laughs) Um, that's so much more interesting. That's one reason I love our book club is we just, we'll talk about war and peace for three hours. It's like, oh, nobody mentioned the pandemic or politics for three hours. That's wonderful. 
And so, yeah, read some books with friends. And if you feel like, man, we don't talk about anything, read read about rabbits. You'll have something to talk Please. about. You'll suddenly find yourself passionately involved in these stories about I love that. critters. A community, a little book club, a few people, yeah. grab a few people and say, hey, let's do this. And not something you feel guilted into reading. Right. Something that sounds like you actually wanted to. Yeah. You really enjoy that. That sounds hilarious. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. Well, Mrs. Hashimov, it's been a heck of a year. And it's been a, and it's been a heck a of a season. Um, and uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm happy to be able to go out uh, with none other than yourself uh, on this last episode. We want to wish everyone the best of all possible summers. We yes. want to wish them happy reading, uh, mm-hmm. good thinking, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, good hopeful, walking with Jesusing. Hopeful communities. <laughs> hopeful communities. Yeah, hopeful communities. If you don't have one, pray, pray, pray. The Lord is good. Um, and we will be, we will be back. We will be back for season three, you and a handful of friends. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it, but I think, I think it's really good to be able to take breaks from all sorts of things, including social media and all the things that we do and, uh, and to spend a little more time, uh, reading. So Mrs. Laura Hashimov, thank you so much for joining us. David Woods. Wow. You see that right there? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When My, when Doctor when Doctor David Woods first whoa when he yeah. first applied uh, he put his middle name and for we thought he was a, a two namer we thought he was David Michael Woods we thought he was David Michael yeah no so I still think of you that way I know David Michael Woods it's weird filling out applications <laughs> how will they see me <laughs> but yeah this has been a delight I've been thankful to be a part of season two um, and to see it growing and the adventures ahead. Everyone who's listening, may you have a wonderful summer. Thank you for joining us, my friends, for season two. uh, And we will see you on the other side of summer. See you later. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.